0: When the truth is found to be lies, and all the joy within you I love the lyrics of Somebody to Love. And I've always thought it was kind of funny, even though I was just a kid. Really, I'm too young for the summer of love. It's just good at my age to be too young for anything. But I do remember the music and remember Grace Slick singing those lyrics at the end of each one of those choruses, you know, and it's sort of like the stages of love. First of all, don't you want somebody to love? And then it's like, wow, it's a little stronger than that. Don't you need somebody to love? And then there's that stage of life where you feel pressure. You better find somebody to love. And uh, today we're going to be talking about what love means. Make love, not war. Because my concern is this, as as I look back on, My lifetime and my generation, and and looking back to the fact that I do remember the 60s and I've watched what's happened over the years, one of the concerns that I have is that love is taken on a different definition. We talk and we sing a lot about love. It's in the lyrics of our songs and it's in our entertainment. But I wonder if we really understand what love is all about. I wanna just take all of you who are young back to an era in time. Let's, In fact, let's just go back to the Summer of Love in 1967, and it wasn't just in San Francisco and Haight-Ashbury, but it was in Philadelphia, New York, Vancouver, and all kinds of cities around the country where young people were basically checking out on the establishment. That was a term for anything that just, you know, was too constricting. They checked out on the establishment, went to the parks, danced, sang some great music, put flowers in their hair, and they're saying, we're, we're changing. And one of the things that came out of the sexual revolution or the summer of love or that entire period of time was something that was called free love. And the idea was that there's no reason for us to deal with archaic, constraining kinds of relationships we ought to be able to love everybody. We ought to be able to love anybody that we want to love. We ought to have free love. And out of that era of time came the idea, and some of you who are younger who have only heard about the summer of love and the sexual revolution, you will hear from, say, professors that you've had in college. you hear from entertainment or maybe even, even aging hippies who are, are telling you what they think happened back during that time, but they don't remember real clearly. Uh, <laughs> you will hear that it was an awakening, it, it was a renaissance, it was a new beginning, it was a revolution. But, you know, I'm just going to give you my take on it And because here I am. I, I was in that era of time, and now I've had 45 years after that to look at it. I'm not really sure it was a revolution or a new beginning. I think it was a capitulation. I think it was a giving up. I think it was, a, it was basically waving the white flag and saying we quit more than you want to know. Let me give you just a little bit of history. The greatest generation or the the largest generation in size is called the baby boom. And basically these were babies who were born to the guys who came back home after World War II. They were building families. And so the baby boom is basically a demographic term that refers to a segment of the population born from 1946 to 1964. And I can just say, first of all, an apology to all of you who are younger and older. I am sorry because we baby boomers are totally insufferable. And I get that. There's just so cotton-picking many of us. That is the issue. I happen to, no, The reason why I'm especially insufferable, I was born in one of the median years of the baby boom, 1956. But, but here's the thing about the baby boom, and here's what all of you should know. And this is the reason why in 2012 it's even relevant to you if you're 20 years old you got to understand there was the greatest shift, the greatest change in the way of looking at life that happened between my generation and my parents' generation. Now, my parents are awesome. So when I speak about the older generation, I'm certainly not referencing my parents. But there was a, there was a broad thing that happened during that period of time. And you got to understand that the great generation, the generation that fought World War II, the generation that went through the Depression, they suffered a lot of deprivation. And a lot of the security that we take for granted in our everyday life, my parents' generation, they didn't really experience that. They grew up in the depression and in some cases they didn't know if they were going to starve to death or not. The depression was not only an economic downturn but it was an agricultural nightmare with the dust bowl and all kinds of problems. And so it was just a time of extreme poverty in the United States. And they didn't even have the time to catch their breath from growing up in extreme poverty before World War II came along. And when we look back on World War II, it's like, oh, yeah, we won that war. That was really easy. That was a piece of cake. I want to tell you something. You go back to 1942, 1943, that was still in doubt. That was still in question. And so many of you, if you're, you know, if you're the if you're next generation to be your grandfathers, if you're my generation to be our fathers, went over to Europe and went to Asia and fought the great war and won the great war. And they came back home and they wanted to raise families. But here's what you should understand about that generation and my generation and why it bears on where you are today. My parents' generation said there's so much that we didn't get to have. We grew up in the Depression. We grew up dirt poor. We grew up with dirt floors. We grew up with nothing. We grew up dirt poor. And we missed our youth because we had to go fight a war. Or we had to go to the factories to build warcraft. So they said, here's what's going to happen. When we go home and we raise families, and they had all those babies from 1946 to 1964, they said, our kids are not going to suffer like we suffered. Our kids are not going to be deprived the way we were deprived. Our kids, you know, we didn't have the education. Our kids are going to have the education. So one of the reasons why my generation is so stinking and sufferable is that we grew up spoiled. Because our parents said, we're going to find a way for our kids to get it. And? That just happened to coincide with this great economic expansion in the United States. And here's what happened with a lot of our dads and moms. A lot of our dads and moms in that drive to show their love language, to give us what they did not have, they worked around the clock. And oftentimes they worked at the expense of their relationship with their kids and their relationship with their spouses. And a lot of kids in my generation grew up with parents who were just not home and marriages that were growing increasingly strained and difficult And the kids grew up and said, maybe there's no such thing as love. Or maybe love like my parents sang about in the Glenn Miller songs of the 40s. Maybe that kind of forever kind of love. and Maybe that's too constricting anyway. What do we, what do we just give up on, on love like our parents experienced it? What if we just wave the white flag, go out to the park and have unrestrained sex with anybody we want to have sex with and use hallucinogenic drugs to make it even more exciting? Let's just forget about love like our parents thought about it because it doesn't exist. Let's go out and redefine love. And so when you and I look back in history and we see the first summer of love in 1967, what you and I need to understand is that is a love that is redefined. And it was the idea that maybe, maybe you don't need a piece of paper to show your love. You can just live together. And if you, know, if you get tired of this person, you can go have somebody else. And who knows, maybe you can have two or three people at one time or four or five people at one time. Maybe you can just get together and live in a commune and share each other. 10 years later, or almost 10 years later, in the mid-70s, Eric Carmen wrote a song. to my way of thinking, and I remember when I was a 19-year-old college student and I heard Eric Carmen's song for the first time, I thought it's like, it's like the closing bracket on the summer of love. It was sort of like the closing bracket on the idea of free love. And the message was so strong that the song went to number one. 20 years later, Celine Dion Covered it and drove it to number one again. That's a strong message in a song, when you can drive it to number one in, in two decades. And here's how it goes. When I was young, I never needed anyone, and making love was just for fun. Those days are gone. Now, wait a minute. Is that, is that really making love? If you don't need anyone and it's just for kicks, can we really call it love? But that's what he said. When I was young, I never needed anyone, and making love was just for fun. Those days are gone. Look at how he wound up the course. All by myself. I don't want to be all by myself anymore. Now, most of us are familiar with the lyrics of the first verse, but I wonder if we ever, like, ever listen to the lyric of the third verse, because the third verse goes like this. Hard to be sure, sometimes I feel so insecure, and love's so distant and obscure Remains the cure. See, I think we have a disconnect. Because on one hand, we're accustomed to love meaning sex in songs. We, 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 hear, we hear, you know, man, you know, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you with. That's another old song for all of you who are young. But, but let me just say, I, mean, I think that's part of it. We hear, we hear that, you know, love is, love is hooking up. Love is finding that person on the internet that you went to high school with and getting together and having young love. But then on the other hand, it, like the stone said, you can't get no satisfaction. And then the next thing you're thinking, well, wait a minute, maybe there is something else out there that's different. I want to put two lyrics from Eric Carman's song that he drove to number one and Celine drew, down, drew, drove to number one two decades later, and I want you to look at two lyrics side by side. Same song. And making love was just for fun. And love's so distant and obscure remains secure. Now, love is in both lyrics, but we're talking about two different things. Because in the first lyric, he's talking about sex. He's saying it's just for fun and I don't need anybody. But then later on, he's talking about it being distant and obscure and it still remains secure. Well, sex is not distant and obscure. You see what I'm saying? Same song, same song, within the body of the same lyric, We're talking about two different kinds of love. How, and here's the thing I want to get to, and this is what this whole introduction has been about. How do we in 2012 make sense out of what love is? I mean, like the Van Halen song, how do you know when it's love? Well, let me give you one statement right out of the box today. Having sex and making love are two different things. Having sex... And making love are two different things. By the way, a lot of times our culture gets it wrong. This is one time our culture gets it right. Making love is a good expression because love has to be made. It's not a feeling that comes and goes. You don't fall into it. You have to make love. And my question for you today is do you know how to make love? I was going to put this on the marquee out front, but then I realized. I realized they wouldn't have the benefit of my introduction. <laughs> but I'm serious as I can be this morning. Do you know how, I'm not asking you, do you know how, how to have sex. I'm asking you, do you know how to make love? Could you? And here's the thing, if you're dating, could you recognize somebody who knows how to make love? Do you know what it takes to make love? Could you recognize it if love had been made? And by the way, you know, you say, well, okay, I've found myself, I don't know how I did this, but I found myself getting into a church. And I knew they were going to do this. I knew they were going to rain on my parade. (laughs) Do you realize we're not just struggling inside the church with this. I mean, psychology is struggling with this. One of the brightest minds in American psychology today is Dr. Robert Sternberg. Undergrad from Yale, Ph.D. from Stanford, 11 honorary doctorates, over 1,000 articles, chapters, and books. One of the most brilliant psychologists in America today and and I could say this for all of you who are followers of the Big Twelve or whatever it's called now. He is provost at Oklahoma State. So if I have any cowboys here, I will just give a shout out to them. I have a few, I heard a few. <laughs> but one of the things that Dr. Robert Sternberg has given us is what he calls a triangular theory of love. And Sternberg says it takes three things to make love. He says it takes intimacy, commitment, and passion. I don't know if the good doctor knows this or not, but he nailed it. He hit the ball out of the park. And what he's saying is new and fresh, and people are talking about his triangular theory of love. But if they really wanted to, they could go back to the very beginning, to Genesis chapter 2, and they would discover that God says the three things that Sternberg says A man leaves his father and mother, that's commitment, is joined to his wife, that's intimacy, glued to his wife, and the two united in one, that's passion. Isn't that cool? Sternberg's on top of it. Word of God's on top of it. Jesus quoted that statement twice, and it's one time in the, in the gospel. So, whether you're secular and you listen to Dr. Sternberg or you're a believer and you listen to Dr. Jesus, one thing is clear having sex is not making love. Love is so much more. Now, I, I'm not, listen I, listen, I believe in sex. And we're gonna talk about that before it's all over. I'm personally gonna bring a message, God willing, on sex, and, and I'll give all the proper disclaimers and, because I'm gonna speak real bluntly and everything. I believe in sex. Um, God invented sex. It wasn't invented by Hollywood or Madison Avenue, God invented So, yeah, it's very important, but it's only one part. And when you have sex, but you don't have the other two parts, you're not making love. I find it interesting. There's a verse in the New Testament that brings almost word for word the same three words that Dr. Sternberg uses. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13, it says, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy. Let's go through that again. We must not pursue the kind of sex, that's passion, that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever. Well, I'm going to stop the introduction right now, and you need to know that we're going to have a talk on intimacy, we're going to have a talk on commitment, we're going to have a talk on passion, we're really going to get down and look at those three things. Today, I just want to give you an overview. If you're here today and you're single and you're looking for love, you can learn how to make love today, and for the next four or five weeks. If you're married, and the fact of the matter is, some of you are not making love, some of you are making war. I mean, you're walking around your house with a protest sign says, make war, not love. <laughs> the story of a young woman, new bride, called her pastor who had married her and her husband just three weeks before. She was just almost, almost hysterical. Pastor, my husband and I had an awful fight. It's our first fight. I'm just distraught. And he said, now, Joanna, all couples have fights. All couples have struggles. Now, you just need to forgive each other and let it go. Don't worry about it. Every couple has fights. Don't worry about it. She said, well, all right, but what do I do with the body? Here's the thing. Some of you are married, but you've never made love. And so my goal is, and especially within the definition that I've given you, you can actually begin making love before you leave today. Because we're going to be talking about what does it take to make love. And here's the thing that I want to do. I want to, I want to paint myself into a corner in this talk. I want to paint myself into the corner of only using one book in the Bible. Now, the Bible, I could go all over Scripture and talk about intimacy, commitment, and passion. But I want to paint myself into the corner of using only one book of Scripture. It is a book that could easily be titled Summer of Love. It is called Song of Solomon, but it is a man and a woman who are making love. And here's what I did. I read the entire book, and I categorized the verses of Song of Solomon, the ones that responded to intimacy, the ones that were... About passion, the ones that were about commitment. So, if you'll just give me a few moments this morning, I want to share with you some basic thoughts about all three things, so that we'll have a flight plan for this series. I want to start where I think love starts, and I know that may not happen this way with every relationship, because there's a dynamic in all relationships. But I believe, for the most part, love starts being made with intimacy. Guys, let me tell you, I've, I've. Uh, I pastored for many, many years, and I've counseled a lot of couples. I don't do marriage counseling anymore, but I used to, and I did a lot. And then beyond that, I've met a lot of great couples, and some of you have met great couples too. And here's what I think you'll discover. Whenever you find a great marriage and you start unpeeling the onion, you may find people who are passionate about each other. You definitely will find people who are committed. But here's what I think you always will discover. When you find a great marriage, you will find two people who are best friends how many times will you hear somebody tell their story long-term great marriage and say you know what the truth is better we were friends first we were friends first see that's what intimacy is intimacy is two people well let me just give you some things about intimacy from the bible but first of all first of all I want you to know this great couples don't have sex until they're committed and they don't commit until they have until they have intimacy or until they're best friends As we look at making love, I want to share with with you several thoughts about intimacy from Song of Solomon. Here we go, about about five things, then we'll move on. First of all, intimacy wants to be with. Intimacy wants to be with. Song of Solomon, chapter one, verse four. Take me with you. Whenever I talk to couples who are having troubles, here's one of the things I discover is that they're going like this. Maybe, you know, when they're dating, they have no problem with that. Take me with you. I want to go with you. I want to be with you. But then we get into marriage and or we get into a, you know, a longer term relationship and, and the next thing you know, you know, this comes along, that comes along and we start going our separate ways. Intimacy says, "Take me with you. Let's run. Let's make it a priority to be together." I'm amazed how many couples today get married And they really just don't, they're not really driven to be with each other. It's like, well, you know, we have sex and, you know, and we like get together every once in a while, but he has his world and I have my world. I mean, this is a true story. I mean, this this is not, I didn't make this up. This is a true story. Businessman was getting on an airplane the other day, you know, and he was in, we're in those little jets where there are two seats on either side and you're sitting real close like this. And. So you know, the guy on a business trip was getting his stuff stowed and sat down, and then a young man came in and sat down next to him and was fastening up. And you know how it is when you get on an airplane you talk. So the, the guy who was on the business trip asked the young man, he said, uh, is this business or pleasure? And the guy said, well, it's pleasure. I'm on my honeymoon. <laughs> and he said, well, where's your wife? Oh, she's back about four rows back. Said, so we couldn't get seats together. And this businessman said, oh, my goodness, there's no reason for you to sit here with me. He said, I'll trade seats with her. He said, no, don't do that. We've been talking a lot the last four weeks. (laughs) There's a marriage headed for trouble. Intimacy wants to be with... Number two, intimacy is into the other person. A few years ago, it could be a couple years ago, there was a movie called He's Not." He's Just Not That Into You. For the most part, it was a movie about superficial chemistry. But real intimacy is into the other person. I love this song of Psalm 117. She says, tell me, my love, where are you leading your flock today? She was saying, where are you going to be? Because I want to meet you where you are. We live in the most narcissistic culture in history, which says, I'm the prima donna. You come meet me where I am. I'm the important person. You come meet me where I am. Man, here is a smoking hot marriage and a woman who says, "Look, or a man, either one." So, tell me where you're going to be today. I want to know where you're going to be because I'm into you. I am so into you. I want to meet you where you are. And that's a challenge. I mean, for one thing, men and women are so different. I happen to come. We, we, we were journaling in our series on prayer. Hope you're still journaling. But I came across a journal entry for the same day, a woman's journal entry and then the guy's journal entry. Let me read it to you because I think it's, it's painful. Her journal, tonight my husband Carl was acting strange. We had made plans to meet at a nice restaurant for dinner. Conversation wasn't flowing. So I suggested we go somewhere quiet where we could talk. He agreed, but he didn't say much. I asked him what was wrong. He said nothing. I asked him if it was my fault he was upset. said he wasn't upset. had nothing to do with me, not to worry about it. On the way home, I told him I loved him, and he smiled slightly and kept driving. When we got home, he just sat there quietly and watched TV. He continued to seem distant and absent. Finally, with silence all around us, I decided to go to bed. About 15 minutes later, he came to bed, but I still felt he was distracted, and his thoughts were somewhere else. He fell asleep. I just don't know what to do. His journal entry, rough day. Boat wouldn't start. Can't figure out why. (laughs) 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 Intimacy is into the other person. I want to meet you where you are. Number three, intimacy feels valued. Song of Solomon 2, verse 4, he escorts me to the banquet hall. It's obvious how much he loves me. Hey, husband, can your wife say it's obvious how much I love her? Well, she knows I love her. I told her five years ago. I mean, that should be enough. Number four, intimacy feels comforted and reassured in the other's presence. Song of Solomon 2 verse 14, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is pleasant and your face is lovely. If you're in an intimate relationship, you know how sweet it is just to see the other person's face or to hear the other person's voice. Let me see your face. I mean, in an unhealthy relationship, it's I don't want to see your face, I don't want to hear your voice. But in a healthy relationship, let me see your face. Number five, intimacy craves the delight of the other person. song of Solomon four verse nine, "You have captured my heart, my treasure, my bride. This is the guy talking now? You sweet talker. You have captured my heart, my treasure, my bride. You hold it hostage with one glance of your eyes. Now, and I'm not talking about what some of you guys experience when you think about the look. That's different. But here is a guy who is saying, look, my sense of well-being is tied up in your feelings so much that I scan your face to see if you're happy. And if you're happy, then I'm happy. If you're unhappy, then I'm troubled. Intimacy craves the delight of the other person. All right, let's go to commitment now. You can have sex without commitment. Listen to me. You can have sex without commitment, but you can't make love. You can't make love without commitment. And here's one that I really want to stress today. Commitment without forever in mind is no commitment. I hear a lot today, Well, we're we're in a long-term relationship. Would somebody please explain to me what that means? We're in a long-term relationship. What that means is I don't plan to stay here. Commitment without forever is no commitment. Let me give you some things from the Song of Solomon about commitment. Number one, commitment is exclusive. Three times in the Song of Solomon, the person says, I am my lover's and my lover is mine. One of the problems that gave rise to the free love movement of the 60s was a sense of being a possession. And I've talked to people who say, I don't want to be somebody else's possession. And if it's not a mutual ownership, I agree with that. Where if if you're in a relationship where one person owns the other person, and that's it, that's a bad relationship. But in a healthy relationship, commitment is exclusive. I belong to her and she belongs to me. Number two, commitment deals with obstacles and issues. This is one of the problems that I have with people that just you know, say, well, we're gonna try it out. Work with me for a moment. What does that mean? We're going to try it out, and if we don't have too many obstacles and we finally get a little bit intimate with each other, then maybe we will commit. Now, we're going to have sex first because that's, that's love. We're going to have sex first because that's what it's all about, and then we'll see if we have anything in common, and then if we have a whole lot in common and we can work through all the obstacles, then we will commit. Oh, it's so backwards because commitment deals with the obstacles, In Song of Solomon 2, verse 15, she says, catch all the the foxes, those little foxes, before they ruin the vineyard of love, for the grapevines are blossoming. In other words, she's saying, let's deal with the problems while they're little. Let's deal with those little things. You know, right now we're just dating, and we're going to get married, we're going to get across the finish line. Those little things he does, you know, they're just sort of cute, and I can absorb those. Guys, let me tell you something. One of the hardest things that I've had to deal with in 35 years of pastoring is I've seen the same story play out hundreds of times. One person in a marriage, often the woman, not always, but often, one person in a marriage is saying, we have a problem. Let's go get help. We got a problem. Let's go get help. And the other person is saying, we don't have a problem. Yes, we have a problem. Please, let's go work on it. I, I'm willing to go see any, any counselor you'll go see. But, but we got, we got some problems we need to work on. We don't, we don't have a problem. I, I don't want to go air our dirty laundry off in front of somebody else. And after all, it's, all, you know, it's your fault anyway. You know, it's just you're acting like your mother. Please. Let's go talk about it. And, and that person, you know, back in the days when we were small church, that person might call me and say, Mark, I need to talk with you. We're, 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 we're having trouble, and, and I can't get my husband, I can't get my wife to come in and talk with you. And, and I know that there's a problem, but I, I, I would do anything to keep my marriage together. And like I say, I have seen this play out so many times, it's like a nightmare that's recurrent. I, what will happen eventually is that first person who has a problem finally will throw up her hands and say, I give up, I quit, I'm out of here. I'm checked out. And you know what the other person says? We have a problem. And that person will call me and say, Mark, we have a problem. And I'm saying, yeah, well, and I'll do anything I can to help you. And then this guy will come and talk to me or this gal will come in and talk to me, but my problem is I can't get a hold of the other person anymore because they're no longer available. They were available for a long period of time, but they're not available anymore. And, and I'm looking at this thing, and if I could have only got the same people, these two people in the same room at the same time, both concerned about their marriage, we could have gotten somewhere. See, commitment takes care of issues, deals with obstacles and issues. Number three, commitment ends the search. I've, I, honestly, guys, I've, I've got friends who are guys, and I've watched this. They get married, you know, and it's like, while they're walking down the aisle, they're like checking out the babes. <laughs> and I say something about that. Oh, I'm just a guy. <laughs> Listen to the Song of Solomon he says, among 60 queens and 80 concubines and countless young women, I would still choose my dove, my perfect one. He was saying, look, when I picked you, the search was over. I'm not looking anywhere else. When she picked him, she said, the search is over. I'm not checking anybody else out. I'm not surfing the internet for porn. I picked my person. She's mine. I would still pick you out. I would still pick him out. He's bald and pot-bellied, but I'd still pick him out. Man, commitment says the position has been filled. And here's another one. And guys, I'm just walking through the summer of love, Song of Solomon. Commitment expects commitment. I want to say to you today, if you're committed, you have a right to expect commitment. It is reasonable for you to expect commitment. And it's like, wow, well, well, and, and here's the thing. Well, 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 Mark, the reason why we haven't gotten married yet, you know, we're sleeping together and, uh, and everything and, and living together and everything, and I'm committed to him, but I haven't, he's not committed to me yet, but I think he's getting closer. I must look stupid. I mean, I really must. Commitment has a right to expect commitment. I love the way this gal talks to, talks to her husband. She said, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. Now, she said two things. It sounds like she's repeated the same thing, but really she said two things. Number one, she said, I want to be like a seal on your heart. In effect, she was saying, I'm talking about now what's going on between your ears. I'm talking about the way you think about other women. I'm talking about the way you think as a man. And she is saying, look, I want to be so, imp- I want to be the woman in your life, when anybody comes along, anybody tries to tempt you, she said, I want to be like a seal on your mind that says, hey, you know what? I don't need anybody else. I have her. And then she said, I want to be like a seal on your arm. A seal on his heart meant what he was thinking. A seal on his arm meant what everybody else thought when they saw him. They knew he was taken. The guys, I know... I know I'm saying some things that are countercultural today. But I believe this, if you're committed, you ought to basically, and I'm not talking about being ridiculous about it, but you need to be, you need to hang out a sign on who you are. I'm committed. I'm taken. I've met guys who were committed and yet they flirted all the time. I don't mean anything by it. Hey, look, you need a sign on your arm that says, I'm committed. I'm sealed. I have a wife who's committed to me. I have a, she has a right to expect me to be committed to her. My heart's sealed. A message that says to everybody else, I'm taken. And then lastly, passion. And I won't spend a whole lot of time here because Song, Song of Solomon gets down and gets on with it. And, and I will, I'll talk frankly about sex the week I talk about sex. First of all, passion is more than sexual. It's the intense craving for another person and for that person to crave you. But sex is part of it. And when there's intimacy and commitment, sex adds the final piece and love becomes a powerful force. When you have intimacy and commitment and passion, sex, you have made love. You have brought the ingredients of love together. And it's powerful. And there's just some great verses about, and, and I'm going to read you some of the less explicit ones right now because we'll, we'll have a disclaimer for the week that I talk about this. But Song of Psalm 1-2, Kiss me and kiss me again for your love is sweeter than wine. And he says in Song 1-9, You're as exciting, my darling, as a mare among Pharaoh's stallions. I'll let you work the Hebrew out on that one. And she says, song 810, when my lover looks at me, he's delighted with what he sees. And I like this one. Song of Solomon 811, Solomon has a vineyard, which he leases out to tenant farmers. Each of them pays a 1,000 pieces of silver for harvesting its fruit. At this moment, she's talking about agricultural real estate. Now listen, but my vineyard is mine to give. And Solomon need not pay a thousand pieces of silver. Get warm in here. You see, I mean, here's a couple that is saying we, we have exclusive mutual rights to each other and we enjoy each other and we don't mind putting it on paper. I mean, I'm not saying everybody should do that, but the Holy Spirit had them do this for thousands of years later for us to read. Well, that's it for me today. I just want to give you a flight plan for where we're headed with this series, but I just want to end where I started by asking you, do you know how to make love? Could you recognize someone who knows how to make love? And It could be that you're married here today and you've been married for years, but you've never made love. You may have had sex, but you've been married for years, and you've never made love My hope is that you will make love. Because love is so big. Song of Solomon 8-7 says, if a man tried to buy love with all his wealth, his offer would be utterly scorned. I've spent my whole morning talking about romantic love, but I want to close by talking about another kind of love. And that's God's love for you. It's not a romantic love. It's a much deeper kind of love. This is more than you want to know. But the New Testament was written in Greek, and, They had several words that we get translated into love in our English language. Epithematis just means raw sex. Eros means romance. Storge is a natural kind of love. It's like like when you pet your dog or you find your favorite chair in the house. (laughs) You mow your neighbor's grass. Well, I guess that would be in the next category. But storge is natural love. And then there's phileo, which was the highest form of Greek love, which is friendship. We got a word friend from that word. But the Christian church needed a word for love to signify that the love of God is greater than any human love. And there was a word agape that became almost exclusive to the Christian church. And it's a word that's very difficult to define. It's why when you open 1 Corinthians 13, you have all those statements about love because it's so big that it's hard to put into one sentence. But the closest I can come to it, is agape love is a completely sacrificial kind of love, where one person sacrifices everything for the other person. Now, let me tell you why I'm closing here today. Because most of us have lived in the time frame of the sexual revolution. Most of us came of age in a sexual revolution. And you could hear a message like I brought today, and you could say, Mark, I am so far away from that picture. And I think probably all of us in our generation could have say, well, I'm at some point, I'm, I'm not there. And if we look back on the things that we've done and the people that we've been with, it's not a perfect picture. And in a lot of our cases, we just keep hooking up with the same wrong people all the time. And so the reason want to close with the message with this today is that somebody could say, well, Mark, really what your message today did was instead of inspiring me to make love, what it really did was it caused me to feel guilty. And I assure you that that is the very last thing that I would want to do. There is a myth in religion, and we try to kick it real hard at New Spring all the time. There is a myth in religion that says the better you are, the more God loves you. If you're a really good person, God loves you a lot. And if you're a fairly good person, God loves you somewhat. And if you're a total screw-up, God doesn't love you at all. I want to tell you something. Your life could be a disaster. Are you ready for this? God loves you as much as if you were perfect. In fact, God... God is more concerned about you right now. And of course, nobody's perfect, but God is more concerned with you right now than if you were perfect. You remember Jesus told a story about a shepherd who had 99 sheep in the fold and one that got lost, and he, went, he left the 99 in the fold to go after that one? You, you can say, Mark, I've got a litany, I've got a long list of horrible relationships. If you will come to God today, And receive his forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ will wash all that dysfunction and all that sin away. And everything will be cleared off the table for you to start new and fresh with God. You know, the Bible says his mercies are new every morning. And you can come to him. Now, if you're here today and you say, Mark, I've never really had a relationship with God. I've tried religion, just left me burned out. Ditto on that. But if you want a relationship with God, you can have it if you ask for it because he wants a relationship with you. He wants to he his love for you is completely sacrificial and total and unconditional. All he asks from you is that you'll put your confidence in him and in his son Jesus Christ who paid the price for all our sin. Would you be willing to invite him in? You know, Jesus says in Revelation 3:20, I'm standing at the door and knocking. If anybody will open the door, and let me come in. Jesus said, I will come in. And even in this message today, you say, well, Mark, I feel all my dysfunction. It's okay. Jesus is at the door. The, the great physician is at the door. The inventor of love is at the door. And if you'll open the door and let him come in. And you say, well, oh, Mark, here's what I need to do. I need to go home and, and, and try to clean up some stuff in my life. And I need to try to do a better job and work it up. And, hey, you can't do that because it'll never be good enough. And there's stuff you can never get control of. Just come right now with the broken pieces and lay them before Jesus and give him a chance to work. I'm gonna pray a prayer. These aren't magic words. What matters is what you feel in your heart. But I'm gonna pray a prayer that reaches out to Jesus. And if you'd like to join me, I'd like to ask you to join me, please. It'd be the biggest decision of your life. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe you love me anyway. I believe you love me unconditionally. I believe your son Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. And I put my confidence in you, Jesus. Save me. Forgive me. Let me start over. Make me God's child in Jesus' name.